Please take your Bibles and turn to the seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 7, and I would like to begin with verse, begin reading with verse 17. Each one should retain the place in life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freedman. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each man that's responsible to God should remain with God. Uh, Bob Dylan says, most of the time I'm halfway uh, content, and I think that's true of most of us, most of the time. There is a, an odd sort of restlessness that drives us. We're rare, rarely content with our present circumstances. The grass always seems greener on the other side of, of the fence. There's a kind of a wanting or longing or yearning that pervades all of our existence. It's very difficult for us to settle down. There was uh, an Italian uh, philosopher and mathematician by the name of Blaise Pascal that uh, wrote a, well actually someone else collected a series of his thoughts in a, in a book that's called simply Thoughts. And this is what he has to say about our, uh, our restlessness. When I have set myself now and then to consider the various distractions of men, the toils and dangers to which they expose themselves in the court or in the camp, Whence arise so many quarrels and passions, such daring and often such evil exploits, I have discovered that all these misfortunes arise from one thing only, that we are unable to stay quietly in our own chamber. Hence it comes that play, the society of women, war, and the offices of state are sought after. Hence it comes that we so love noise and movement. Why we're always on the move. We want to move up or move out or move on or move in. As James Taylor says, we go where I should not let me go simply because we're not content. That's why the quest is never the conquest. That's why we enjoy the chase and the hunt and not the kill. And that's why arriving sometimes is absolutely unbearable. But if I understand what Paul is saying here, and and I think I do, he's saying the greatest thing is just to stay put. Just remain with God. Be content in the circumstances in which God called you. He says very clearly that that place is your assignment. Uh, 
God has assigned you to that position. It doesn't make any difference how difficult the circumstances can be. Now, he does say that uh, if it's possible, legally, morally, biblically, to get out of a difficult situation, there's no reason not to. We Christians are not masochists. There's no reason to, uh, to ask for trouble. But if we are in a place and we cannot get out of that situation, we can remain with God. Now note the way Paul presents his uh, case. What he says essentially is that his call to salvation sanctifies every circumstance. He uses two illustrations from uh, Corinthian life. I don't know why he chose these two, except they probably do have a broader application than the, the two specific illustrations he uses. He uses circumcision and slavery. Apparently some uh, that were circumcised wanted to be uncircumcised. There was an operation that, uh, that would uncircumcise a man. In those days, uh, they competed in the games and they trained uh, in, in the all together. You talk about thinly clads. So they were about as thinly clad as you could be. And, and in the Roman world, it was, uh, it was not the thing to be circumcised. So apparently there were some men that uh, wanted to undo that, that operation. Or there were some that were thinking that they ought to be circumcised who were, uh, who were not. Then there were some that, were, that found themselves in slavery, which of course was a, was a social problem uh, then. And slavery was a, a grinding, terrible experience. And Paul says, if it is possible to get free, then by all means, uh, get free. But realize that if you are a slave, you are, in fact, free. It really, it's not your place, it's your perspective that matters. You're as free as a bird in the most binding, inhibiting circumstance. Now, to broaden the application a little bit, I think Paul is talking about the two areas of life where we, we are inclined to be restless. One is with our own bodies. I don't know of anyone who likes the way they look. You know, they look in the mirror and there's something ought to be moved around and, and they want a little less here or a little more there or whatever. And, and, if, and if you really like yourself and the way you look, you're probably a very rare bird. Uh, we all would like to change something, but I think what Paul is saying is that, uh, is that we need to accept ourselves the way we are because what our bodies are like really doesn't matter. It's, it's utterly irrelevant. What matters, the reality, is what he calls the reality of righteousness. It's being the right kind of person in the body that God has given to you. Paul didn't like his body. He, there was something wrong with him. He, he prayed three times that God would remove his uh, thorn in the flesh, probably some very serious eye problem that he had that disabled him. He may have been partially blind. There's one reference in the book of Acts to his peering at the Sanhedrin. He squinted at them. He just couldn't see who was speaking to him. And he asked three times for the Lord to take that affliction away from him. And God said, in effect, that, Paul, that's no problem to me because my strength is made perfect in your, in your weakness. And then when you turn back to the Old Testament, there's Moses who, who apparently had a stammering problem, and he didn't like that. He wanted it to be taken away. And God said to him, Moses, who made your tongue? See, it's not the body afflictions, it's not the appearance of our body that matters. What really matters is righteousness. It's being what God has called you to be within that, 
within that body. I'm fond of quoting both to you and to myself Peter's words in, in 2 Peter 1 when he, he says, you know, you've, you've been given a divine nature. You, our Lord is not someone who simply stands alongside. He's come to indwell you. And, and now by faith in him, you can begin to add to yourself manliness, mastery is really the word in, in the Greek language. It has the idea of what every, every man and woman wants to be, sort of the archetypical person. Begin to grow in that direction, he's saying, and add to your, uh, to your mastery, uh, intimacy with God, knowledge of him. And to intimacy with God, uh, um, uh, my mind just went blank. What's the next one? Uh, Brotherly kindness, magnanimity, and to brotherly kindness add love as, as deep and as broad as the love of God. Because, he says, if these things are in you and increasing, they make you that you shall be neither ineffective nor unfruitful in the knowledge of God. You want to touch people's lives? And what touches them is the, is the fragrance of your inner life, making visible the invisible life wherever you of Christ, wherever you go. And you don't have to be tall, dark, and handsome, shapely and beautiful to do that. Uh, it doesn't matter. See, your body doesn't matter, is what he's saying. Oh, you know, exercise profits a little, he says to Timothy, and, and there's nothing wrong with exercise. There's nothing wrong with taking care of, of your body, but it's secondary, he's saying. The main thing is to be content with what God has given to you. And then the other area where we tend to struggle is in the area of, of circumstances, and particularly, I think, in the area of our occupations. This seems to be true of men and women uh, right across the board, that we always feel that uh, we've got to move on to another situation where we're, where we're affirmed more, where we're appreciated more, where we make more. Somehow, God's will is always upward mobile. I don't know if you've noticed that, but that seems to be the case. That's really just turning the truth upside down because, if anything, the gospel teaches us that God's will is downward mobile. It's becoming the servant of all. The issue is not how many we rule over but how many we, we serve. And, and if God is calling you on to some other career, if God is calling you out of your present uh, con, uh, uh, position into a higher position, then by all means move up. But, but I think uh, a move, a career move, simply to satisfy our own egos and Simply to make more money is, is rarely God's, God's will. I think uh, men very often do distressing things to their family, moving them across the country, uprooting their, their children, taking them to another place solely for, for selfish reasons, just to have a little better life for, them, for themselves, to feel a little better about themselves. If God moves you across the country, that's one thing. But uh, if you're doing it for yourself, I, I think you need to hear what Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 45. He says, do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. Seek them not. Paul's point is to be content with where you are until God, to use uh, Francis Schaeffer's colorful term, extrudes you from that, from that place. God's will sanctifies the place that you're in, the safest place in the world, the most secure place in the world, is the, the center of, of God's will. See, that's always the issue. So uh, what Paul is saying is, is serve him right there. The, uh, the bottom line of Paul's argument in verses 17 through, uh, through 24 is to remain. 
remain. Hang in there. Stay put. Uh, as they say, the, the grass may look uh, greener on the other side of the fence, but it's uh, just as hard to, hard to cut. Brighten the corner where, where you are, in the words of that song we used to sing when we were, we were children. Uh, most of you know Pete Amon, who's a good friend of mine. And Pete and his family used to ranch out near Oriana. His father homesteaded a place out there, and we used to go out and tramp around on his ranch. And, and uh, I remember we were in a canyon once, and there wasn't a single tree in sight except one little uh, cedar tree, along juniper tree along the side of the draw, and no other trees around. And there were a couple of cows that were finding shade under the, under the tree. And Peter said, that's often the case. You'll find a cow underneath that tree. And he said, that's one of the best illustrations I've ever seen of blooming where you're planted. There was a scrubby little tree. It wasn't much to look at, but it was doing its job. It was shading a couple of cows. And uh, Paul would say, just, just bloom where you're planted. You can be satisfied. You can be content. You can be fulfilled there. You can be greatly used of God in the circumstances in which you find yourself. Let me show you a couple of interesting verses. Turn uh, all the way back to the book of Hebrews, which is almost at the end of your New Testaments, Hebrews, James, the little books of that John wrote, Jude, Revelation. Hebrews 13. I don't know who wrote this book. It was a second-generation Christian, someone who was taught by the apostles. But they taught with apostolic authority. They, thought, uh, they wrote under their ages. And uh, they, this writer says what, what the apostles uh, continuously say, that love is, is the greatest thing. And in chapter 13, uh, expands on that theme. Keep, keep on loving each other as brothers. Love one another. Uh, love strangers, verse 2. Uh, love prisoners. Apparently they needed uh, prison reform then as, as now. And then in verse 4, marriage, he says, should be honored by all. The, the, the word for marriage here is the word for the marriage ceremony. In other words, uh, keep your vows sacred. They mean something. Keep your word. The marriage ceremony should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. In other words, those who maintain a lifestyle of adultery and sexual immorality will begin to experience uh, that, that withdrawing of God's presence and love. And uh, then uh, he tells us what not to love. Love one another, love strangers, love your spouse, but don't love money. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And it struck me as I read this verse this last week, one way to know if you love money is to ask yourself if you're content with what you have. And if you aren't, if I'm not, then we probably do love money. And uh, he says, don't, uh, don't love it. Be content with what you have because God has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I've mentioned before that in the Greek language, it's perfectly proper grammatically to use a double negative. It's not good English to say I don't never, but it is in, in Greek. And, and that's what the writer does here. He doubles up on the negatives. 
What he's saying is, I will never, under any circumstances, whatever, leave you. I will never, ever, under any imaginable set of circumstances, forsake you. See? So when you have God, you have everything you need. You don't need money. You don't need a change in location. You don't need another job. You don't need a bigger house. You don't. It's all right to have those things if God is moving you in that direction, but you don't have to have them. That's the problem. You're not driven by your, your discontent. And because God has said that, and because uh, he doesn't lie to us, we, the writer says, can say. See, that's the only responsible response to that, uh, to that promise. We don't need any other authority. He has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid of what a man can do to me or a woman can do to me. See? We can be content where we are. Now, I turn back to another more familiar passage, Philippians 4. Uh, the uh, folks up in uh, northern Macedonia had sent a gift to Paul, and he is uh, expressing thanks for that. I rejoice, verse 10, I rejoice greatly that at last you have renewed your concern for me. I'm not saying this, verse 11, because I'm in need. Listen to this. I have learned to be content. I don't think we come into this world normally contented. We tend to be demanding. It's something we have to learn. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything. Through him who gives me strength. That's how we learn to be content. By discovering the sufficiency of Christ. That he really does enable us to live in any situation and to be peaceful and restful there. Now, uh, as, I, as I've said on a number of occasions during the last few weeks as we've been going through this passage... There may be situations where it is legally, morally, biblically right to move out of your present set of circumstances. But I think what bottom line, bottom line, what Paul is saying here is that it should not be our restlessness that drives us. Because we can endure in any situation if we remain with God. See, that's the key. To know that he will never leave us or forsake us. To know that he is our sufficiency. He is our adequacy. And what I have discovered when, when, I, when I leave a difficult situation too soon and before God releases me is that I don't learn the lessons that I needed to learn in that situation. Very often the problem is not with the circumstances and it's not with the other people that are in that circumstance. The problem is with me. There are areas of my own life that need to be dealt with and if I leave too fast, those issues are never faced and I never learn to deal with them. God's way. See. So that remaining is a character building move, if we can put it put it that way. It does something for you that that leaving too soon uh, will not do for you. Now I think what Paul is doing is first establishing a general principle. He puts it right in the middle of this section. And then uh, he surrounds it with a number of practical applications. As I pointed out last week, the key word in chapter 7 is remain, stay put. 
Uh, it's found uh, in verse 8 with reference to unmarried, that is, divorced people and widows. It's good for them to remain unmarried. Uh, but if they can't control themselves, they should marry. It's not wrong to marry. But Paul is saying it's they can remain in an unmarried state. Uh, verse 11, a wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Verse 20, each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Verse 14, brothers, each man as responsible to God should remain with God. And then uh, uh, in verse 40, with reference to one whose spouse is deceased, they can, they're free to marry uh, anyone they wish as long as they belong to the Lord. But Paul says, in my judgment, you're happier if you remain as you are. See? I think what Paul is doing is first giving us the principle. He's saying that uh, it's not the place, it's not the face, it's not the circumstances that are, that are the problem. It's, it's us. It's our perspective on the situation in which we, we find ourselves. And we must not let that relentless restlessness pushes out of out of God's will. Now he applies that principle in verses uh, 25 and following to those that have never been married because here's an area where restlessness does tend to pervade. People who are unmarried feel very awkward about their unmarried status, particularly in our society where we think that single people are a little bit strange, there's something wrong with them, particularly when they they reach that point that they're kind of over the hill. And, and we're wondering, why Why aren't you married yet? As though there's something fundamentally wrong with being single. But what Paul will say in this passage, and I, and I hope this comes across to you single men and women loud and clear, is that he not only approves of the single state, he advocates it. Not for reasons of spirituality, as we shall see. You are not happier if you're single, necessarily. You are not more spiritual if you are single. But as he will will tell us it's, uh, it's, it's the more practical thing to do in view of the shortness of our, of our lifespan. Now, let me, let me read beginning with verse 25. Now, concerning virgins. Now, remember, they had written a letter raising a number of questions, and Paul is addressing each of these questions in turn. About virgins, I have no command from the Lord. But I give a, an opinion. Please note, this is not an apostolic command. This is an opinion. Here Paul makes it very clear that he is not speaking as an inspired apostle. He's simply giving his judgment, the way my text translates it, as one who's trustworthy. He thinks of himself as someone who has experience, who's been around, who has some wisdom to impart. But this is merely an opinion. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is, is trustworthy. You can trust me, he says. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. In other words, gentlemen, don't hustle. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. Nothing wrong with marrying, but there's also nothing wrong with being single. Will we get that through our heads? If you are single, you are not strange, you are not weird, 
necessarily. <clears throat> As Paul will say, you're really very special. Okay? Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. My, is that ever true? Those filmy things that hang in the bathroom. bathroom. Years ago, I ran across a poem that Francis Bacon wrote. Domestic cares afflict the husband's bed and pain his head. Those that live single take it for a curse. Some would have children. Those that have them moan or wish them gone. What is it then to have or have no wife but single thraldom or double strife? What he's saying is that the single state has its set of problems, but so does the married state. And single people are saying, oh, if I was just married. And married people are saying, oh, if I was just single. Some married people do. They have to realize that both states have their sets of problems, and inhibiting factors, and their pain, their struggles. I, I want you to understand something. Don't be surprised if you cannot find full happiness in this world. There is no full happiness in the world. That awaits heaven. We live in a fallen world. And, and we have this uh, strange idea that somewhere along the line we're going to find happiness. We're going to wring happiness out of this world. It's going to be in marriage. It's going to be in our children. It's going to be in our job. And all we have to do is move on until we find the right place, and then we'll find happiness. If you do that, you'll be very, very unhappy. Because while there are certain serendipities, little happy surprises in this world that God gives us, by and large, this is, this is a uh, brutish, cold, fiendish world. And there's a lot of heartache in this world. And all Paul is telling us is that both conditions have their, their share of toil and, and trouble. And Paul says, I want you single people to know that if you get married, you're, you're going to have trouble. And I'd like to spare you that. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short from now on. From now on, those who had wives should live as, as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world is not engrossed in them. These are the things that normally occupy us. Marriage and sadness, and joy and buying and selling and all the other affairs of the world. And Paul is saying those are... Those are things in which we're engaged. You can't get away from it. He's not saying that you should take your marriage lightly or that you should take your sorrow in a, in a flippant way or that your joy should be subdued or silent or that you shouldn't buy or sell. What he's saying is those are secondary factors, secondary matters. They're not the main thing because this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, that is, how he can please his, his wife. Now, he, now, Paul is not saying that it's wrong to please your wife. Gentlemen, if you're married, it would be sin not to please your wife. It's sin not to focus on your family, you see. 
But as he's, as he's going to argue that that does take a considerable amount of time, time that can be invested if you were single in, in other enterprises. Uh, a married man, he says, is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. He's not saying that's wrong. He's just saying that's a fact. I'm saying this for your good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion. Undivided devotion to the Lord, you see. Undistracted. But if anyone thinks he's acting improperly toward his vir- toward the virgin he's engaged to, if she's getting along in years, I had to chuckle when I looked up that, that word. The particular word that's used there is for a woman who is about 15 years of age. In those days, women married very young. So if you're over 15, you're over the hill. I hate to tell you that. And, and he feels he ought to marry. He should do as he wants. He, he's not sinning. See? It's not wrong to marry. But... Neither is it wrong to be single. He, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but is control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does even better. Do you see what Paul is saying? He, he not only approves of your single state if you're single, he advocates it. He doesn't say you're strange. He says you're someone very, very special. Now, isn't it odd that we in the church denigrate the single state? We, you know, we, we, we look a little bit askance at people that aren't, aren't single. And as I pointed out last week, our Lord was a bachelor to the end of his days. He died a bachelor. Paul was probably divorced. His wife probably left him when he became a Christian. And uh, he, he lived as, as, a, as a single man uh, to the end of his, uh, his days. And, and Jesus said in Matthew 19, a passage we'll look at in a moment, that that's a very special gift which God gives. So it's all right to, to be single. You're not, you're not the odd person out. You're all right if you're single. Now, Paul says that all of this is in view of the present distress, and that raises the question, what, what on earth is he talking about? Some commentators say there was some local situation in Corinth that demanded or that made it... Uh, uh, it wasn't really appropriate to get married, some, some persecution that was taking its toll on the church and therefore it would be better not to, not to have a wife or to have children. But I don't think so because there's no indication that the church was being persecuted at this time. There was certainly no imperial persecution because Christianity was a licit religion at the time. It was accepted. And there's nothing in, in any of the Corinthian letters that would suggest that the church was, was under fire. So I don't think it was a local crisis. Corinthian crisis. Others say, well, he's talking about the coming of the Lord. Paul believes strongly that the the coming of Christ was imminent, and there is a predicted period of of struggle and intense uh, persecution prior to the coming of Christ. Uh, That's what he's talking about, that they're headed into this period, he believed, and uh, they should therefore not not, uh, get married, have children. 
But again, I don't think so. I think Paul tells us what, uh, what the present condition was. It's a condition that obtains for all of us. What he says is the time is short. Time is short. What he means is that we're all short timers. When I was in the military, you got down toward the end of your term, they used to refer you to a, as a short timer. You used to have all these jokes about, you know, you don't have time to lace your boots all the way to the top and that sort of thing. That's what Paul is saying. We're all short timers. You know, given the fact that you and I are going to live for eternity, the 60, 70, 80, 90 year span that we live here on earth is, is just a moment of time. What Paul is saying is this. You just, you have a, Finite number of years here on this earth, make the most of your moments. Make every bit of your time count. And as far as Paul was concerned, single people had the advantage on married people because they had more discretionary time to invest in the kingdom of God. Not invest in quicker cars or higher fire or better skiing equipment, and, and, you know, but to invest in the, in the kingdom of God. Now, all things being equal, I, you know, that's true. I, I realize that for single parents, single moms, a lot of your time has to be devoted to your family. But just for the average single person who, who doesn't have children, or who's not required to support a, a family and play both mom and dad, just the average single man or woman out there, what Paul is saying is, sure, it's okay to spend your weekends doing some skiing and hunting and fishing and all the other things that we love to do. But but that's not the main thing. The main thing is to invest your life where it really counts in the kingdom of God because you've got the time to do it. See? Married person has to invest so much of his or her time in pleasing his or her spouse. That's only right. It would be sinful not to do that. But a single person can take off for a weekend and invest in the lives of some kids teach a Sunday school class or take off for the summer, go overseas on a short-term mission or pull up roots and go overseas and spend the rest of your life ministering in, in that place. You've got your whole, you've got a large portion of your life that, that, that you can invest in, in eternal commodities. See, the only thing that we're going to, Jesus said, don't store up treasure on this earth, store up treasure in heaven. And the only commodity that's going to heaven is people. Paul is saying, invest your life in the lives of your your friends. Disciple your friends. Encourage them in their growth. Teach them the scriptures. Befriend them. Do the things that really matter. Share your faith with people. Get involved in ministries that that will count for for eternity. I ask you, could Paul have, have won the West if he'd been married? No, probably not. You know, he was able, he spent a lot of time in jail. That would have been very hard on his family. But he could pull up roots, go wherever God sent him, move here and and there without any limitations or inhibitions, and just invest him his whole life where it really counted. And I think of people like Wetherill Johnson and uh, Henrietta Mears, John R. W. Stott, and others that, for various reasons, have remained single throughout their lives. And what an investment they have made in the lives of others! I look at so many of you women that I know that are involved in Bible study fellowship, and I doubt that Wetherill Johnson would ever have been able to develop that ministry if she had not been a, 
a single woman throughout all of her life. Henrietta Mears had a tremendous impact on my life while I was in the military. I used to drive over to Hollywood Presbyterian Church. I was stationed at Barstow and I used to drive over to, to Hollywood just to, just to sit under her teaching. She marked me irreparably. Uh, there's a woman that invested her whole life in ministering to, to young men and, and young women. See, the problem with single people is that they... They're always in transit. They can never settle down. Uh, My friend John uh, Fisher, who was here just a couple of weeks ago, puts it this way. He says, the suggestion creeps into my mind that I'm incomplete. I'm in a holding pattern, flying around trying to find an an airport so I can get my feet on the ground and start living. It comes up even in the way I live, the way I place things in my room. I keep thinking, when I have my own place... Or when I have someone with me, then I'll do this or that. That kind of thinking keeps me from being the man God has called me to be right now. The singleness can be uh, viewed as a, a, a kind of a olive jam. You get that one olive of singleness out of the way, then you can really begin to live your life. You know, all the real you will, will come out, but that's not true. You can begin to live right where you are. Because God can be your, your sufficiency. You can use your single state in order to advance the kingdom of God. Let me, uh, let me have you turn to one other passage, Matthew 19, and our Lord's teaching on the gift of celibacy. Because that's confusing, I think, to a lot of people. What is that gift? Is the gift of celibacy... Uh, Uh, just uh, you know, taking away from us the urge to merge? Is it that single people no longer are lonely? Is it they don't want to marry? No, that's, that's not the gift of, of celibacy. The single people that I know are often, often lonely, often very lonely. I think I've mentioned before the, a friend of mine who was the secretary to a very prominent Bible teacher who has been single all of his life and and he asked him one time, haven't you ever wanted to get married? And he said, he said, oh, yes. He said, I've had a number of opportunities to marry, but for one reason or another, it wasn't God's will. And then he just uh, got the most pained look on his face, and he said, I'm very lonely. I'm very lonely. And uh, many of you can, can endorse that, that sentiment. You know, you, you get very lonely at times. The gift of of singleness and celibacy is not that God lifts from you that sense of, of aloneness. It's something else. I want you to look at Matthew 19. Remember the, the occasion Jesus uh, was, was responding to the question that the Pharisees asked about, uh, about uh, marriage. Is there any cause for divorce? And Jesus said, yes, uh, adultery breaks the relationship. But that's the only cause, and uh, you need to hang in there and work on your marriage Marriages and the disciples said, "Ooh, that's a hard saying. That's harsh. Perhaps it would be better to be unmarried." And uh, Jesus replied, "Well, not everyone can accept this teaching. That is, that it's better not to marry, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven." He, can, he who can accept this should, should accept it. And I ask myself, what is this gift? Is it some, something that God just bestows on you so that you're 
You're made out of iron and you have no more emotions, no more feelings, no more desires, no more longing, no more loneliness. No, no, it's not that at all. I just want to say this. If you're single, if you're single, then you have the gift of celibacy. Because the gift of being single and celibate is God himself. That's what Paul means when he says, remain with God. If you have God, you may be lonely, but God can touch you right in that loneliness. As Augustine said, God is the best husband. And he would say the same thing to men. God is the best spouse you could ever have. But though there may be times of real pain and awkwardness in your single state, God can touch you right where you are. And uh, he'll be your friend. He'll be your companion. He'll be your lover. He'll provide for you in ways that you would never imagine. And he will, in that, that circumstance, set you free to serve others. So uh, Paul's uh, encouragement to all of us would be to remain, stay put, to remain with God. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that you would give us a quiet, submissive heart, <clears throat> a willingness to, to remain where we are in our circumstances until you've made it abundantly clear that we're to leave. We would pray that you would, would grant to us that peace of mind and that perspective on our circumstances that would lead us to be at rest where we are, not to want more, free us from the desire to, to have more, to possess something that's really not your desire for us, and help us to be content with such things as we have, knowing that you will never, ever leave us or forsake us. We can say with with David, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You can, in the midst of, of our lonely situation, provide your companionship. Be the friend that we need to take us through life and enable us to be the kind of men and women who will touch the lives of others deeply and for eternity. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.